Oh, yeah. Quantum. Oh, my goodness. In the Department of Defense, stupid has a long tail because there's no free market corrective factor. Lisa Porter, a longtime vet of the national security, science and technology community, provides a fascinating and unvarnished looks at the ins and outs of how the U.S. national security establishment engages with research and development. The conversation does get a bit esoteric at times, but the perspective Lisa provides is a unique, important and really entertaining one. Co-hosting with me today is Eric Lofgren of the Acquisition Talk podcast. Do note that if you prefer not to hear ads in the feed, just sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash Chinatalk. Lisa Porter, welcome to another edition of China Acquisition Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what's kept you busy the past few decades? I started off early in my career at DARPA and was a program manager there. And I went from there to NASA and I ran the aeronautics uh, mission director there. So all of aeronautics. Had a lot of fun with that. Uh, then went on to start IARPA, which, as you can guess from the name, was intended to be and is the DARPA for the intelligence community. So stood that up. That was quite a challenge, but it was a fun challenge. Uh, and then I said, 10 years in the government, let's try the private sector for a while. So I went and worked for Teledyne, learned a lot about business. And that turned out to be a very valuable experience because until you've run a PL and been responsible for the actual livelihood of people, you don't really fully understand the pressures that a business person has, whether they're in the defense industrial base or not. And so when I came back to the government, first I came back to Incutel, which was a nice balance between private sector and the government. Then I was asked to serve as the deputy undersecretary of defense for research and engineering. And I think that private sector experience that I had really made me better at the job than I would have been without it. Now, I am a co-president of a, a small startup, if you will. It's a consulting company that my former boss and now colleague and I run together, Mike Griffin and I. So that's me in a nutshell, I think. So, Lisa, you've been in this game a long time, having to interact with lots of people who don't have STEM degrees. What college courses would you most like to assign to every acquisitions or policy person in the defense universe. I may be a little biased here because as you're not going to be too surprised, one of the answers to that is some basic physics, I think would go a long way. Understanding some of the basic laws of conservation and how things move and don't move is very valuable. And I think people, especially in the space community, have these models of how things work that aren't really governed by laws of physics. So like Star Wars, the Millennium Falcon, right? The Battlestar Galactica notion that things zip around in space, things move very slowly in space, right? They move fast in their orbits, but if they have to go from one orbit to another, that's a very slow process. It takes a lot of propellant, takes a lot of time. So this notion of how things move in space is something that you don't develop an intuition for unless you've done a little bit of physics. So you mentioned Star Wars, which is fascinating and shocking to me how much of a touch point all this sci-fi stuff is. And on the one hand, we've had guests on the past talk about how these sorts of pieces of culture inspired them in high school to go try to build a transponder or what have you. But there are also the sort of downsides that you uh, alluded to. Can you talk a little bit about the before we, before we go to our next uh, uh, course, um, can you talk a little bit about the impact that popular culture has on technology development in the Pentagon in general and then in the space domain in particular? Yeah, I think for the Pentagon in particular, when people think about space as a war, quote, warfighting domain, they tend to think about the way spacecraft are moving and how they're going to get out of the way of threats. They think about it by applying those models from Star Wars. We all have those images of the Millennial Falcon just zipping 
away and things firing at it. I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I loved Star Wars as a kid, too. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the original Star Wars, you know, movies. Totally inspirational. The physics courses then give you that sense of, okay, what's real and what isn't. Inspiration is great, but it doesn't mean you should be deriving your sense of what is correct from the movies. So that's been a problem for the Pentagon because when they think about space as a, quote, warfighting domain, they're applying the wrong analogies often to how to think about defending a- assets, resilience, right? Hey, Lisa, we've been hearing a little bit about uh, nuclear reactor spacecraft uh, that DARPA has been putting up and others. What's your view on these? Or is it like proliferation, EW, cyber? Like that's the real warfighting domain. Yeah, so the warfighting domain actually, I think, extends from low Earth orbit all the way up to cislunar beyond. And interestingly, General Dickinson, who's the new space comm commander, he recently gave a a talk about this and made this point, right? So when you're talking about getting to the outer reaches, nuclear powered is always a good option. And I think it's a smart investment for the low Earth orbit, like you were just bringing up. And that's where a lot of the near-term focus is now. That's all about making sure the proliferation is there to sustain really good connectivity, really good comms, and of course, really good awareness, right, of what the threats might be doing. And you're probably aware of Space Development Agency. I'm sure you both are. And that's the example that I would put out of what the DOD is doing. And I think it makes sense, right? Because that's a physics-based and physics-derived idea of how to think about ISR in space and comms in space. Statistics. Why should anyone care? Statistics reminds us that our intuition about numbers is often not correct. And, and it reminds us how to think about probabilities in a little bit more disciplined way. The probabilities of certain things happening versus not happening. Not to get too far astray of the topic here, but if you think about the way this country is struggling with the efficacy of vaccines and whether or not vaccines have an impact, they're not looking at probabilities correctly and they're not doing things in the appropriate context of probabilities. And by they, a lot of the members of the general public and the media, frankly. So in oh, general, oh, we, we can throw the we can throw the regulatory bodies in there, too, as well, I think. Absolutely. We can. And, you know, I'm again, I was a nuclear engineer undergrad, so I saw firsthand what happens when people don't put the effort into understanding probability and statistics, right? They tend to overinflate those things that have a very high potential for catastrophe, but a very low probability of occurrence. They don't know how to manage that understanding. So we're seeing that now with vaccines. You see that in, in the history of a lot of different investments. And frankly, you'll see this in the biotech industry as we go forward, not just for vaccines, but for some of the interesting other applications that are going to surface where people get freaked out about GMOs and they just do not understand how to apply scientific thinking and statistical rigor to how they assess risk. So that's why statistics to me is so important. It allows you to understand better your risk calculus. We're going to we're going to take the detour because you opened the door. It's just looking at the FDA when they're trying to make these decisions based on like, how are people going to respond and are we losing our confidence? It's like, no, yeah. you just follow the numbers and hope that right. you have an educated and functional enough populace to lead you where you want to go. And when you try to play games with this sort of stuff That's and right. and, um, uh, and massage it, you That's you right. get these absolutely ridiculous outcomes like the president of the United States telling everyone to get a shot, 75% of the country already having one, and then them still saying, oh, well, we're not so sure about it. So it's- Yeah, and you get a lot of confusion and people are now more confused than ever. The clarity of messaging is completely gone. And you're right. The confidence in just understanding how to communicate facts in a clear way is really important in any kind of regulatory body. I totally agree with you. 
So yeah. well, maybe taking that and bringing it back to the Pentagon context, like what, where do you think that works and where do you think it doesn't work in like the defense industrial community? I think in general, the way we, and, and it's interesting that Eric is on the call because I'd be interested to get his perspectives and maybe the dialogue among the three of us here. The way people assess risk and the way they assess priority to address risk and therefore the funding, right, associated with risk, oftentimes you will see the development of programs that are way too expensive, way too, you know, um, exquisite because they're addressing the one threat that has 0.001% probability of occurrence. And if they just took that off the table and said, you know what, if we addressed everything else, we'd be good enough, it would have already been delivered for one-tenth the cost and be up there and be effective in space or in other domains. I'm just picking space as an example. And so that's why these concepts of let's do risk assessment and management and then allocate our funding accordingly is a process that I'm sure, Eric, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, but I think it's one that is not there yet. Let's put it that way in the Pentagon. Yeah, but I feel that a lot of the Pentagon processes are trying to take what are fundamentally anticipations or, or questions where there's not a single answer or conflicting views should be able to prevail. And then we yeah. try to force it into these boxes and and then we over-optimize for those yes. things and to the exclusion of others. So I That's feel like it's our reliance on, I guess, a very linear view of statistics rather yeah. than, I guess, being able, I, I don't know what the alternative is, because like in the market and in science, we have these kinds of republic of science, right, was Polyani's words. And in the market, you just have people with private capital able to make their investment decisions regardless. And they actually want to conflict with the prevailing yes. paradigm. So how do we need more than defense or is, is that the wrong way of thinking about it? That's a good question. We're really getting we're really getting into this interesting dialogue that I hadn't necessarily anticipated, but it's my fault because I opened the door, as Jordan said. I think and we can talk about this in the context of Silicon Valley, which is where I think some of the conversation you guys wanted to take on, because what you just described, Eric, is essentially what I champion, which is the benefits of a free market. Right. So free market ultimately will prevent stupid. It might take a while, but there's a reason Theranos no longer has the shine on it, right? Eventually, the market will say, this is not a good idea. This is not a defensible idea, and it dies, right? In the Department of Defense, stupid has a long tail because there's no correction for, there's no free market corrective factor. And that's the thing you have to be mindful of, very mindful of when you look at Silicon Valley and you say, I want to adopt that kind of innovation culture into the Pentagon, you have to realize that those correction factors are not there in the Pentagon. So you can't just abandon discipline as part of the investment thesis of what you do. You have to still recognize your responsibility when you're a steward of taxpayer dollars is not to just throw a bunch of money at stupid and assume the market's going to correct it because it doesn't. There's no market in the DOD, right? It's not the same correcting factor. So I think this is part of the challenge a DOD has. It recognizes that it's been slow and it recognizes that it's become stale, right, in some contexts. And you guys have mentioned DIU, you brought that up when we were talking and places like that that are set up to try to deal with that. But there's not a recognition of, okay, but those models and those cultures are different and they, and if you're not careful and you adopt some of something and not all of it, you can actually end up in a worse position. If you're trying to avoid bureaucratic slowness, which is Goodness, the DOD is 
champions in that, but you adopt something that allows you to just invest in stupid willy-nilly, you've just replaced one bad outcome with another. That's what I'm trying to say. It's fascinating hearing this in the context of what's happened in China over the past few weeks, where we've seen the government be very explicit that certain types of market-driven investment is not something that the party is all that interested in supporting going forward. And it's one thing when it's video games targeted at children and pet food and after-school education programs, which are probably crazily overpriced anyways. But it also leads up at the higher levels where you're talking about tens of billions of dollars being allocated to industries based on sort of national priorities, which are not necessarily being allocated in the most sort of rigorous way. And right. it's a like common, I've, I've asked this to to a few guests now, like to A, to what extent the Lockheeds of the world are like Chinese SOEs and B, to what extent the Chinese defense, in the Chinese like broader state-owned industry runs like the Pentagon, because it seems like the a lot of the inefficiencies that Eric has opened my eyes to over the past years, I see over and over again, particularly in the Chinese context. Absolutely. I mean, so Jordan, I think you know about the hearing I was involved in a few weeks ago, and you're touching on a point that I was trying to make, which it touches on the concepts of industrial policy and things like this. Where is that appropriate and where is it not? And I think you asked about or you commented to me about civil fusion, civil military fusion, and and what does that mean and how much is enough? And the Chinese approach in general is not something we should be emulating. So that was the macro point that I was making is that what I, if I were to take a step back and say, what has China been most successful in doing to us in the past few years? It's been to convince us to doubt ourselves and our way of doing things and to be obsessed with how they're doing things and to be worried about maybe we should do things differently. Whereas, in fact, if we are, if we continue to do things the way we do them to, to include, right, and I'm big proponent of making this explicit. It's not just innovation that leads to success. It's innovation in combination with the free market and with the rule of law and with intellectual property rights and all of those things together that enable this country to to punch way above its weight. And I actually just saw this, happened to see it last week, but it came out a couple of weeks ago. Pricewaterhouse released the top 10, I'm sorry, top 100 companies in the world. Did you guys see this by market cap? 59 of the top 100 are in the U.S., and 65% of the total market cap is in the United States. So we're a country that has less than 5% of the world's population and closer to four, and yet we're generating 65% of the total market cap of the world. So our system works pretty well, and China knows that, and they don't want us to continue on that path. So they're trying to convince us that maybe we got to change our ways and look more like them. And so this obsession with the civil military, civil fusion, and maybe we have to have more government fusion with the civil side and and look more like China and our obsession with how much money China's spending on certain technologies versus the outcomes, which is what you should be measuring. That's that has me concerned because I think China's got us off our game. Yeah. I want to push back a little on that. I don't think China is doing civil military fusion as a sort of backdoor way to get America to change its policies. But um, maybe we can we can take the uh, I think there are other uh, sort of more uh, central motivations to that. But anyways, let's let's turn to some of it. It has the it has that outcome. I mean, I'm (laughs) looking at outcome perspective and whether they intended to or not, they've had that effect on us. That's fair. And the same. 
And the same thing actually happened in uh, the Soviet times. We explicitly picked up a five-year defense program. It's now called Future Years Defense Program. But we essentially, we looked a lot more like the Soviets through the 50s and 60s, adopting a lot of those centrally planned types of structures. And we actually, a lot of people believed in the techno structures, right? The big primes would actually keep growing and always stay advanced of any kind of disruptive startups. And eventually they would merge with the government, right? So it's an interesting parallel. It is a little bit of human nature what you're raising, right? So people tend to get obsessed with what their adversaries are doing. But because it's the Olympic time frame, and I love the Olympics, I'm just, I just really love sports. And there's a saying, an adage that I didn't make up, but I just, I've been saying it lately because I love it. Winners focus on winning, losers focus on the winners. And we have to remember that fundamentally. We should do what we know we want to do and stop obsessing about what others are doing. And if that's our main focus and we recognize we must have it mostly because we're doing pretty well, let's double down on what we do well and continue to push forward, I think that would be a much better mindset. Now, Jordan, you're right. I'm not sure that China actually explicitly set out to say, you know, our overall objective should be to to get the U.S. off its game, but it's been very effective. And when you think about it, that's a better strategy than most things you can do to us. So let's take this um, back to space, because space is a really interesting edge case in which the Mm -hmm. U.S. government is maybe not for a long time, but certainly for the past 50 plus years and likely for the next five to 10 going forward. The U.S. government, as well as other governments around the world, are the major buyers of launch services and anything else that you can get that's space adjacent. So how are you thinking about broadly how the U.S. government should be shepherding this commercial revolution, which we're starting to see in space. So it's been a very exciting time for space. And I think it's important when we look at this sector that we look at it holistically. So all the pieces of the space sector from the launch and the spacecraft all the way downstream to the services that come about, they all have to work together. And if one part of that chain doesn't work, then nothing works. And there are weak links in that chain, at least from an economic perspective, right? In particular, launch is one that you that you referenced in spacecraft production. These are capital-intensive endeavors where the return on investment takes a long time. So they're not attractive to a lot of the investment vehicles that are out there, particularly for more of the downstream services, where, of course, the capital investment is lower and the returns are faster and higher. And so the government, in particular, defense community really does have to be paying attention to that and saying, OK, how do we ensure that we bolster, if you will, or support those parts of this ecosystem that are a little bit fragile? And that's what I think you're seeing done mostly well in the past 10 years, although lots of opportunity for improvement. But the Space Development Agency in particular, I think that if you ask what are they trying to do, they're trying to show with some investment that we can get a more robust spacecraft production tempo, right? That the concept of actually producing spacecraft, not one every five years, several every year, up to tens to hundreds of per year, ultimately we'd like to get to. The launch side, we still got to work on some more, as we know, because people talk about this concept of proliferating constellations and there's a lot of excitement around that, right? There's a lot of excitement, even of potential commercial um, opportunities there as well. But You've got to be able to replenish your satellites and the vehicles you use to deploy them are not the same as the vehicles you use to replenish them. And people haven't all figured that out yet. And if you think that through, getting back to statistics, why do statistics matter? Because failures are random. So if you have, let's say, I'm going to make this up. If you have 
18 planes and 15 satellites per plane. That's roughly, it's a little less than 300 satellites. In a given plane, you might have three failures per year if you've got a five-year lifetime. Okay, you don't want to replenish all 15 in a plane. You only want to replenish the three that you need to replace that year. That means you need a vehicle that can get about, let's say, one to two metric tons up to, let's say, 800 kilometers every two to three weeks. This is math. This is why statistics matters. Okay? We don't have a vehicle that can do that today. So once we deploy multiple satellites of order 300, right, which the Space Development Agency is pushing, and and many of the commercial analogs are, are arguing the same coverage, now you've got a very inefficient way of replenishing those satellites because the launch vehicle doesn't exist that can do that economically. That's an example of where the national security arena still has work to do to decide how it invests in capabilities that aren't going to be driven by the market because they're so expensive, right? Until you give them a delta push that says this is where you need to focus. I think you, that you can, at that point, we've been seeing um, a lot of SPACs, you know, rising yes. up and a lot yeah. in, in more than in times past, a lot of discussion on deep tech and a lot of these people who did the quote unquote dog walking apps. Now they're like looking for a newer and bigger challenge. And so we're seeing, I think, this kind of revolution in the aerospace industry, particularly because it has such low quantity volumes and these incumbent guys that are working in it, that it's ripe for disruption through like this software defined or even like additive manufacturing types of processes. And it seems so there's this kind of recognition and money starting to flow in and Maybe we're in a bubble, but maybe that will lay some critical infrastructure for the future of space if it were a bubble. But like, where does the government, Department of Defense, NASA, how do they position themselves to give the right signals? Because it still feels the incumbents are the incumbents. And even if you provide me something better at a cheaper cost, it's just I have no way of knowing how to get in there. So what does what do you think the, the Department of Defense, NASA, the rest of them have to do? Yeah. So I think to pull on the example that I was giving and you were talking about, I think if you look again at Space Development Agency, they've done a pretty good job at signaling what is needed and they're incentivizing the right behavior. So if you look at who they funded in their first tranche, they had the traditional Lockheed Martin, but they also had York, which is definitely a startup type of company in terms of it's not the big dog in this industry. They've also, through that process, stimulated a lot of smaller companies that are participating as subs to these primes because the primes recognize they need to bring in more innovation. So it's been a very, I think, overall a positive way of trying to signal the right behavior, but only in one element of the overall problem, which is the spacecraft production. And that's why I brought up launch, because that part still needs a signal, like you were just describing, along the lines of what I was just saying, with a little more depth and the math written down. Obviously, I was just giving you numbers to give you a sense of statistics matters. And, and to say, look, guys, this is great. We're on, a, we're on the right path to get to pro- solving two problems that really matter to the Department of Defense and therefore to our country. One is resilient comms. And two is the ability to see the threats coming before, well before we have to deal with them. So we have time to deal with them, especially hypersonic threats. Okay, great. We're solving really important problems. But we all know that part of the beauty of this approach is that these satellites are going to have lifetimes of a few years so we continually update them. That's a feature. We like that we can continually upgrade the technology capability. The downside to that is, of course, you got to continually upgrade the satellite. So the replenishment problem needs to be signaled, right? If you were to ask me, what does the Department of Defense need to do to signal the right behavior on the launch side that they haven't been strong in their voice yet? It is on the replenishment problem. 
there are companies out there that, to your point, that are spacking in the launch arena that could probably, they're early enough, they could pivot to address that problem if it were articulated. And if they thought it through, they'd realize the government is going to be a reliable customer for that because it needs to solve that problem. So they could probably make a bet with their investors and say, you know what, if we did this, we could count on the government as a long-term customer. But the government has not been clear, in my opinion, the Department of Defense has not been clear enough that this is a required need down the road. Yeah. And, and not 10 years down the road, just a few years down the road. So that answers your question, I think, for DOD. And that's an example, right? So it's about the DOD, NASA, the Intel, whatever the particular agency is, defining these are the needs we need filled. And sometimes we've been good at it. And so you've seen a lot of excitement around that. And sometimes we're not. And then you see, oh, shoot, there is a gap. We have we have no one there to supply. Yeah, It's, it's um, interesting. It yeah. comes back to our earlier conversation. We were talking about DOD having a hard time wrapping their heads around things that are not exquisite and have 0% failure rates. And there are not like it's really obvious that like small, sad constellations are an important thing that's happening. And that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, but the second order consequences that come through that, um, you know, once you kind of accept that are, 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 are difficult to, to, to really grasp and wrap your heads around. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, Yeah. So another question on the sort of coming back to China and the space industrial base, there are some fears out there that 50% of the market is government and presumably the USG isn't going to be buying images from Chinese firms anytime soon, but lots of other companies around the world potentially could. And there's some fear that whether it comes to launch or imaging or or network services, that developments like what you saw happening in solar could happen in the space ecosystem where China puts out a product which is equally good and cheaper and folks go there and that sort of leaves the US industrial base weekend in a sector that is a strategic one. Are you worried about this? Are there any particular subsectors that you think are more or less vulnerable to this sort of development? And how should um, the government think about trying to stop this before it before it happens? So I think we have great lessons to learn here for where we screwed this up in the past. So we don't do it again. And that would be in the way we've managed export control, where we've had in our mind a fear about the Chinese getting access to some of our advanced technology and then using it against us. And the problem with that is that what we've done, and I'll take launch again as a very specific example, because we're behind where we should be in launch and capability based on where we were 50 years ago, right? We were so worried about people using launch in, you know, basically making, making launch vehicles into ICBMs to use against us. That drove our ITAR policy for launch. But all that did was generate European and Indian capability, right? Because they were forced to generate their own capability because we weren't available to compete, to, to provide that on the market. It did nothing to, to prevent our adversaries from developing ICBM capabilities. So our allies are not going to use technologies against us. They're our allies. So all we did was create a situation where we're no longer the best providers of launch. And now we're coming back, of course, but this, take the history of this. You have India, you had France coming on strong, and, you know, we still have adversaries able to to do what they do. So it, it always bothered me because we lost command of a global market in launch, and we didn't gain anything for it. The thing we were afraid of still materialized. To your point, China will still develop capability. They're not stupid. They've got lots of really smart people. So we have to stay competitive by staying engaged in the global market and recognizing it's not just the U.S., right? So to your point, 
U.S. should be thinking about our European allies. We should be thinking about our partnerships with Japan and our partnerships with India. And together, we should say, look, as we look at space, what do we want to do collectively there and collaboratively? We want to explore it. We want to exploit it. We should go and do those things together. And if China does what China does, fine, as long as they don't try to harm us or prevent us from doing what we want to do. And that's why we have a national security community. Then we just keep going. And competition is good. Competition from China, as long as it's is, as long as it's competition, it, it should drive us to be better. Yeah. If we truly can't compete with a Chinese company on technology and capability, then we need to look inward and say, what do we need to do better? Sure. Do- I, I don't think we should be afraid of competition. Competition does not create wars, right? It's the lack of competition that creates disadvantage. And that's what we've done to us through our policies in the past. We've taken ourselves out of competition. So- yeah, I was just going to say on ITAR, one of my friends, he would say he was talking with a, a French engineer. He said, ITAR, the international traffic and arms regulation. He says that's the way that the U.S. keeps itself from knowing how far behind it actually is in many technologies. Yes. Beautifully <laughs> said. Beautifully said. I love it. I'm going to spell that because that's just exactly correct. Exactly correct. We but, take ourselves out of the competition. You know, it feels if we didn't have SpaceX serendipitously come in, we wouldn't have realized this stagnation in the launch and what that means for our national security and commercial industry. Do you think like this problem is potentially pervasive across the force structure and we just don't really have the signals that tell us like we could have been doing this much better all along? We do have to worry about that in the parts of our force structure that don't have that access to through commercial markets. So things like carriers and submarines and things where there's no commercial market. We do have to make sure that we're the best. And again, that's why we rely on the national security community to try to augment what we can't know through competitive forces. And there's a whole conversation we could have about what's required to maintain excellence in domains where there is no commercial market to provide those corrective forces. And by the way, expertise and excellence have to be the two goals that I would say are the most important for the Pentagon to do some self-reflection on. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question. How happy are you to be out, Lisa? Oh, I'm so happy to be out. So happy to be out. It's uh, yeah, it's a tough environment, I'll tell you. So, yeah, I, I think you're asking a really good question, though. I think that's why the, to the extent you can leverage competitive forces, the better. It's all competition always makes you better. You know, I, I love that you're bringing it back to these market principles. What does that look like in the Department of Defense or government? Because it's we often come back to this industrial policy kind of question as well. Like, how do we stimulate and do this, that and the other? What is the equivalent? Because government is a non-market actor. Do we like so how do we bridge that gap? I think the most important thing is the government has to recognize that, right? It's not a market actor, as you put it. And so it has to always think about using competition as much as possible to ameliorate, and of course you can't eliminate, but to mitigate that risk that you're introducing by the very fact that the government is in the central involvement of those particular things. So you use competition, you try not to pick winners, right? The government gets in this habit of wanting to pick winners. That's when I get worried about industrial policy. The government doesn't know how to do that. We can, You and I can probably sit here and rattle off a hundred examples. But rather than just cite failures, we have to recognize from a principled basis that the government is not set up to pick winners well. So instead, it should set up mechanisms that allow it to reward winners that emerge, right, rather than subsidizing those who the government thinks are going to win. And 
this is important because it's as long as you keep that mindset, you can at least leverage the concepts of open, full and open competition as you pursue those things that, to your point, are not truly market driven. And to your point about SpaceX, the history of SpaceX in part, SpaceX did rely very heavily on government investment. And the COTS program that my colleague Mike Griffin started when he was NASA administrator, I think is a great example of how you try to balance that competition with the reality of, hey, this isn't a commercial market. So setting those milestone payments up and saying, okay, industry, I'm not picking a winner. It could be SpaceX or it could be Joe's launch down the street, right? I'm going to tell you what I want to see you do. And if you do it, I'll pay you. And it's a very clear milestone. It's a very clear way of saying, I'm not picking the winner. I'm just going to make the funds available if you can meet my target. And that was very successful driver. And of course, SpaceX was able to meet milestones that others couldn't, and it allowed it to leapfrog forward and has been a really good driver, as you said, for a lot of success in the community. But that's a good, I think, partnership, if you will, without a heavy hand of industrial policy. It's not like Mike Griffin went to Elon Musk and said, I'm going to pick you as a winner and I'm going to give you this money and I'm just going to subsidize you and make sure you succeed. That might be what China would do, but that's not what the U.S. should do. So to the extent you can introduce competition, even in the markets where you know it's distorted because you are the only customer, you, you, that's how you try to mitigate it, Eric, I think, if that makes sense. Uh, that does make sense. It seems like there's that model, the as a service. If you build it, I will pay for it. But it seems like that would almost say government should not have very much research and development dollars. Pull those back into operations and maintenance or whatever, and then they just buy it from whoever could do it the best and provide that signal. But I think with the milestone, you're saying a lot of these things are so big and so difficult. We need to have this incremental payment, but it's not necessarily they're providing me a final product. I'm actually, they're showing me tests and demonstrations. And then now you also said earlier, IP rights are very important. How does that kind of fall into this? Because a lot of Silicon Valley types or new entrants, they're very worried about losing their intellectual property because the government helped fund them. So what's your view there? And is that a potential sticking point for bringing in these new companies? It is. And, you know, Eric, it applies to space. It applies to everything. And I think the government needs to take a step back and say, what do I want? What is the purpose of me acquiring IP rights and demanding them versus not? There's a natural tendency, and it's understandable, right, to say, look, the taxpayer paid for this if I invest in you. So it should have access to your product, and, and usually that's an IP, right? That's the generation of the idea, the designs, the drawings, whatever it is. But the flip side to that is the taxpayer is actually paying the government, in the case of the DOD, to defend the country using a variety of tools and techniques and blah, 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 blah. So there needs to be a lot smarter thinking about, in some cases, if my desire is to fund early research, right, very early stage, where I'm trying to advance the knowledge and the capability of fundamental level, then yes, I'm going to want everyone to have access to that outcome. That's fair. And I'm going to require government purpose rights. But as I go up higher and I'm asking for a product that you're demonstrating, then, you know, why am I asking you to provide the IP when in fact, I just want to be able to procure the product from you and ensure I can, is, if you can meet it, I can buy more of it. I don't want your company to go out of business, right? Because I've driven away the most important value in your company. So the problem here, Eric, that you're touching on that drives me crazy is the government writ large likes to make binary decisions. It wants that easy button. It wants a one size fits all. And it's just, oh, it's just too exhausting to think about this in this particular context for this particular <laughs> situation. 
Let me just have the, the written down rule that I have to follow and check a box. And, and that's the problem. That's not the way we should be executing. So it, it, the answer is, of course, it depends. And it requires thought and it requires asking, what am I trying to accomplish? And in many cases, the government should say, you know what, as long as companies provide the interfaces so that I can plug and play different products like open standards model, right? an open interface model, then I should allow the folks to own the proprietary things that connect, but they're going to have to connect according to my open interfaces. And if they don't get to play, that works for a variety of applications as well, depending on the problem you're solving. So there's definitely a way for win-win when you have smart government buyers and you have companies who are willing to frankly push back and not just say, I'm going to give the government everything because I need the money so bad. And then two years down the road, they're really regretting it, which, of course, we've seen that play out. So, yeah, it frustrates the heck out of me how the concept of nuance is apparently lost in the government. Yeah, I like to say that everything that the government likes to do is a universal metric for whether it's good or bad. How do we get yeah. to a contextual metric? We do. I like that contextual metric. You're coming up with a lot of good buzzwords here that I'm going to steal from your you know, it's absolutely right. So it does get back to one of the elephants in the room for conversations like this and any conversation about the DOD is having the right expertise along the entire value chain, right? From the early development of tech all the way up through the procurement of the product for deployment. And you've seen it, Jordan, you've seen it from your interactions with people and interviews that you've done. There are really good people, definitely scattered throughout the DOD for sure. But there's also a lot of molasses or whatever slug in the system of people that really don't know what they're doing. And you have people assigned to the wrong. They might be good at certain skills and they're assigned to the wrong job, too. That happens. And if you don't have the right people who have the confidence to say, you know, most things in life are not zero and one. That's why I'm a big proponent of risk assessment, right? Risk analysis. It allows you to think through the, the pros and cons. Every decision you make has a downside. Everything. There's no beautiful, perfect solution to anything in life. We know this, right? So given that, I've got to be thoughtful. I've got to look at the context, to your point, you know, and I've got to be recognizing that there will be consequences to every decision I make, including no decision. And I've got to weigh those. And then I've got to make informed decisions. And I've got to be willing to adjust and adapt. That's the other point, is we can't get locked into a decision because we made it two years ago and then we refuse to, to budge off of it which, by the way, we've seen a lot in the Pentagon as well. Yeah. So one of the places where there does seem to me, at least to be a lot of excellence, is uh, in QTEL, a place where you spent a number of, of years. Uh, what do you think works about that organization? Oh, a lot of things work. You know, and again, I'm biased, right? So I, I don't want to sound like I'm congratulating myself in any way, but certainly they're very picky about who they hire. So they go through a pretty uh, intensive hiring process. It's not just you come in for a one-hour interview and you're good to go. They really want to find people who are smart and thoughtful and a little contrarian, willing to push back, and who have a passion for the mission. And the mission there is supporting the intelligence community as writ large. And all. And the reason that last part is so important, of course, is that Inkytel's investments are made not to make money. So people incorrectly call it the VC arm of the CIA or the VC arm of the intelligence community. And we always pushed back on that because our intent was never to make money. Our intent was to identify those technologies that could help the IC's mission. Once you got to that hurdle, then we would look very critically at three different elements of any investment. One was the technical credibility, the due diligence, 
from a technical perspective. One was the management team, right? And one was the business case because the company had to be around five years after she made the investment or it wasn't any good. It wasn't going to do any good. So the level of diligence that Inkytel brings to the investments that it makes is very high compared to what in the average VC investment, not to say VCs don't make assessments, but Inkytel really, you know, it does that diligence that I was referring to earlier. It doesn't just run with an investment two days after it hears a pitch. It actually does do those checks to say, does this make sense? And the reason is they feel a responsibility not to financial return, but to mission return for their customer. And I think that's why it works. And they do not deviate from that principle. It's grain, ingrained in you when you're there. And I think it's very effective because of that. This is one for both Eric and Lisa. Like, how does that attitude, hiring process, mission commitment get translated out into the rest of the folks who spend money in DOD? You know, I, I will tell you that when I was there, people asked Mike and myself how it was that we were able to attract several really talented technical people. So when we were there, we stood up something called the Modernization Priorities. And there were 11 of them in total in different technical domains. And we brought in people who were responsible for those areas. And they were very impressive. And people asked us, how did you do that? How did you get these smart people? It's like we said, you're not going to be here forever, but we'd really like you to come in for a few years and take this job. Now, every single one of them, without exception, took a huge pay cut to do this. They were working usually in the private sector or in very you know high-level jobs in FFRDCs where they were making decent money. That was fine because the mission was so interesting and important to them. And when they came in, we empowered them to then go and have that impact that they were looking to have. That's the key. I think the Pentagon has an opportunity to attract really smart people because a lot of people want to serve the mission in different ways. And Eric, I think it was your blog where you talked about, you, you re-ran a Rick over interview where he made this point. It's, he makes, it's a great point. He said, look, I, and he was so right. Rick Ober was known for being an amazing leader, but also having amazing technical talent that worked for him. And he said, look, they're getting uh, offers every week or whatever, every month, let's say. And they choose to work for me and for the mission and it ain't for the money. And I think we have to recognize it's not about the money. It's about people come for the mission and they stay or they leave, depending on whether you allow them the, the authority essentially to execute. We then, the problem the Pentagon does is it does attract some good people and then it boxes them in so much that they can't actually do what they came to do. And I think that's the challenge, Jordan, that Incutel, by contrast, and DARPA, by contrast, which does have excellent staff, empowers its staff. It says, you know what? I hired you because you're good. I'm not going to put you in a closet now and not let you do anything. Yeah, it seems that I think that's the, the key element there. Like the Department of Defense, it seems like it has a committee, all these people they define a program of record and then they find some poor sap to go do it, right? And that person's not really empowered in the way that you're talking. And I want to pounce on what you said. You said, we brought them, we got these excellent people. We, we brought them in for a temporary thing. And one of the Andreessen Horowitz thesis was that like the technical founders are actually the best suited to scaling a company and learning the business side compared to just like handing it off. And Department mm -hmm. of Defense, the S&T people like DARPA, they'll come in for five years and then they leave. And then hopefully we get that thing transitioned. But should the Pentagon actually be encouraging project managers from the S&T side to kind of transition along with their technology and really be like the, the human leading that effort? It's not the program. It's like the person. And then the program follows from that person like Rickover. 
Yeah. So the concept that you're highlighting, of course, is a very interesting one. And it's funny, I will say that for some of my students in the private sector, I worked at Teledyne and the CEO of Teledyne for a long time, I think he's still chairman of the board, was Robert Morabian, who had been, by the way, the president of um, Carnegie Mellon before he was at Teledyne. And he used to say exactly the same kind of thing. He said, I would much rather take a technologist or an engineer who understands the product of the business and teach them business than to bring in a business person and try to teach them technology. So he ran a company that way. And if you look at his track record, if you're interested, look at the history of Teledyne. It's a pretty good success story based on that thesis. So I think Andreessen Horowitz, I think technology companies in general recognize the value of someone really understanding the technology is a lot more important than, not necessarily more important, but a lot less difficult to deal with teaching them the business part than the other way around. And that's kind of what you're touching on. But and so there's nothing wrong with that idea of saying, how do we, because you're talking about knowledge transfer. And what you're saying correctly is, if I just hand you a widget, that doesn't do you any good unless I bring you the knowledge some way for you to understand everything about that widget and how to use it and what its limitations are and how to integrate it and so forth. And that's why if you bring the person along, you get that knowledge transfer along with the tech transfer. But it's not enough. So the real problem, I would argue, of tech transition in the DOD, <clears throat> there's a couple of key problems. One is right up front, getting the right people involved from the very beginning. And successful examples show you repeatedly that the way to do that is you get the users and the designers in the same room early on. And the users have to define what problem it is that you're trying to solve. And the designers then have to think critically and creatively about what can be done to solve it. And if you get people playing the wrong roles there, or you don't have the users in the room, you'll end up with a product that doesn't do anything that the users want and vice versa. If the users just try to tell you what they want rather than the problem they're trying to solve, they'll end up with things that don't make sense technically. And so creating that team up front that says, you know, the way we really should be executing is bringing the users, the designers all in the room at the same time and laying out the plan and then iterating on it as we go through a prototyping and experimentation approach, which allows us to learn early and often before we lock in and build something that doesn't work, that's what's missing. And that's, by the way, in part why r &E was stood up, by the way, in the department, uh, because there was a recognition on the Hill, at least, that stuff was getting transitioned into the acquisition pipeline way too early without credible and defensible assessment of the tech maturity and without sufficient prototyping to really test it and ring it out. So at a macro level, the goal should always be build the right thing and build it the right way, right? <laughs> you don't build the right thing if you don't get the users involved and you don't build it the right way if you don't get the tech people appropriately working with the users to make sure that the credibility is there, the maturity gets to the point where it needs to be and gets integrated effectively. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the R&E split because there was one big acquisition organization that had the S&T, all the tech people, I guess a subsector within it. And that idea was to get away from this issue, like at Xerox Park, where you had all these innovations going on the West Coast, but they could never transition. And so until Steve Jobs actually comes in and takes a lot of those things and puts them together and f founds Apple. Now in 2018, we split that back out. There's R&E side and the acquisition side, and you were on the research and engineering side. And a lot right. of people were fearing like, hey, if we split these two things apart, we're actually going to get less transition. There's not going to be this kind of unity of command. So can you just talk about what was your experience with that big reorganization and like, where do you see that going? 
Yeah, I think people don't know, don't necessarily understand what was at the heart of McCain's push for this. And it was Senator McCain who was really pushing this. As you probably know, Eric, the DOD did not want this. And that's been part of the problem. But McCain recognized that the acquisition system was just broken, frankly. And you didn't have to be a genius to see that. And repeatedly, people had studied the problem ad nauseum. And they've done all these studies about what was wrong. And they came, they kept coming up with the same root causes. And it was a lot of it was tied to lack of good system engineering, lack of good, credible assessments of the technology in terms of the maturation of it, how long it would actually take to mature it to a point where it should be integrated. A lot of failures are tied to immature tech, not being effectively tested not and prototyping not occurring, rushing into production, rushing into an acquisition process before the tech development had been really, truly laid out properly. So what he wanted to do, and it's not, it wasn't a Xerox Bell Labs kind of thing. What he was trying to do was elevate the importance of the technical voice at the table for deciding when a program was appropriate to transition to acquisition. And there was a bunch of, of authorities that Arnie was supposed to have along those lines to improve this process. If done properly, you would have independent technical review standards you would have a set of processes that you would follow to ensure that technology was mature enough before you gave it the green light to be inserted into programs of record, right? You would have system engineering standards for test and evaluation for both hardware and software along the entire value chain. These were the things that he wanted R&E as an organization to have ownership for and to provide to the department. Unfortunately, first of all, he passed away. So his vision of the importance of R&E and how it needed this very strong voice at the table died out a little bit. It's not that the Hill didn't still support it, but they were less strident about it, let's say. Uh, and the DOD did not want it. The last thing that the services want in general is to be told anything about what they need to do by OSD. And certainly introducing a new organization called R&E and that was going to tell them their tanker shouldn't be bought because it doesn't tank, which we tried to do is just something they don't want. They gave us the hand. And the services are very powerful. And for people who don't understand the Pentagon sort of hierarchy, you may think that the Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense are the ones that are in charge. When it comes to acquisition, no. It's the services that are in charge. And they will give the hand to OSD as whenever they need to. And that's a problem. And it has not been fixed. Um, but McCain was trying to fix that what he saw as an endemic set of issues that he was correct about. A lot of issues stemmed around the lack of technical assessment at the right times and the lack of prototyping to really wring out the issues before you got to production buys. And that's how you get an F-35. And if anybody thinks that's been a success, we can spend an hour or two on that one. So, yeah, so that's, it's not the same as, hey, I want to create a lab like an, a Bell Labs or a park where I can get some really smart people coming up with super cool innovation. That's not what the stand-up of Arnie was trying to do. That is a separate problem and a separate issue with which I agree with you that people have written about very eloquently. But that wasn't the intent, right? That wasn't the focus. So it, has, it wasn't as fun an experience as I'd hoped to answer your question. Yeah, I think there was a watered-down version. I think the original vision was R&E would have the milestone acquisition process, you know, oh, and that, and then it got none of it. It was just basically yep. limited to the small dollars. I think it looked like 3% of the DOD is actually controlled on the SNT side. And that was yeah. just like far diminutive of what DDRE used to have in the past, which was up through milestone C, right? 
That's correct. And you're exactly right. So what I try to remind people is fundamentally the RE role was about being the CTO of the organization. And a healthy organization, look at the private sector that's run well, where you have an independent technical group that actually sets the standards for execution. If you look at really successful companies that build things, they have an independent engineering authority that sets the standards, right? The quality control standards, for example. And those people are very powerful and they cannot be told no if they say, look, you've got a quality control issue, as an example. That was, I think, in his mind. That said, I think very clearly he was trying to be clear. I need that level of diligence and elevation of the importance of the technical assessment at the table. And he just passed away, unfortunately, and people weren't willing to see that through. Now, there's still a chance to change that. I'm being vocal about it with people, as is Mike Griffin, as have others who believed in this. And we're hoping that it's given a shot. But, you know, who knows? I, I get asked a lot. Do you think that ATNL is going to merge back together? And, and I have no idea, but I wouldn't bet against that. I wouldn't want to see it, but I wouldn't bet. Lisa, overrated, underrated, emerging technologies with respect to national security. Let's start with 5G. Okay. So 5G is one of my favorite topics. If you happen to track what I did in the Pentagon and you ask me, is there anything that you did that you thought was somewhat successful, I would point to our 5G efforts. We stood up a whole 5G plan and execution of that plan, and it's going very well. Everything that we just talked about in terms of challenges of transitioning and getting the users and the technologists in the room at the same time, I went in with that mindset when I stood up that effort, and I was handed the baton by the Secretary of Defense at the time, who was acting, Secretary Shanahan. And I was told, again, to tie in the China thing, Jordan, China's beating us. We have to win. And I said, I don't really know what that means when you say China's beating us, but I do understand that we need to get our arms around 5G and figure out what we want to do in the country and leverage what the private sector is doing, because this is an example of a commercially driven enterprise and the DOD should be leveraging it. So we put a plan together where we brought the user community in. We brought the entire DOD in. Everybody worked very well together. Basically, because we just didn't do things like a DOD 5000 or an ACT plan or a CFT, Eric, if you remember those stupid things, there was no tents on tables. There was no, I didn't care what your rank was at all. I didn't want to know what your rank was. I just, you could be part of the team if you had the capability to contribute. We brought in industry and we had real dialogue with CTOs of big companies and small companies, technical dialogues about what was possible. And we put that plan together with all of that. And then we were transparent about it. We published, and it's out there on the web, we published the DoD 5G strategy, we published the plan, and now it's executing. There are large-scale experiments at many bases across the country with all the services engaged with the user community. And when you hear the Marines talking about the importance of experimentation so that they know what they're going to leverage for their smart warehouses, you have to feel a little bit of success, right? You have to feel like maybe it's not... Uh, completely lost that we can actually get to this experimentation culture that I've been talking about. So 5G, in my opinion, in terms of your question, is being appropriately emphasized. It's really important in terms of ubiquitous connectivity and the implications of that, both the positives and negatives for our national security. How about on hypersonics, overrated, underrated? I think appropriately rated. For a long time, the, the DOD did not pay enough attention to it. It kind of lost its focus on that. China took advantage of that and did a lot of good development, frankly, based on our technologies, but then to their credit, advanced advanced the ball 
we woke up to that and said, wait a minute, we need hypersonics for offense. We need it for defense. We need to be able to do long range strike. And in certain ways, hypersonics makes the most sense. And very importantly, we need to know how to defend against that threat. And so I think it is now appropriately funded. I think there's appropriate attention on it. I'd like to see them accelerate the production emphasis of the hypersonics and other, but other than that, I think I'm much, I'm much happier about where we were, where we are now than where we were a few years ago. China just said that they came out with a Mach 30 wind tunnel for hypersonic tests. And I've talked to a couple of people in the industry and they say that might actually be a real thing, but it seems like one of the things that maybe hypersonics is underrated just because we don't seem to be investing in these like enabling tools and technologies um, to get us there. And maybe we focus too much on just like the, the pretty end item at the end of the stage. If no one invested in electronic microscopes, then that would seriously have hampered research in biology, right? Um, I sure. guess it's kind of the sure. same thing in, deep, in the Department of Defense. Sure. And, and there are elements of hypersonics, if you want to get really geeky, that you could say are underfunded, for sure. But overall, the focus of it, at least in terms of answering it at a macro level, is significantly improved. The funding profile from the DOD has been significantly improved over it was where it was a few years ago. It's certainly getting a lot more attention and focus. And by the way, I, it's one of the areas, ironically, where the services are really working pretty well together. And that was a lot of effort on the part of the entire department. So I'm giving it a, I'm giving it a good score, not an A, but I would give it a, a passing score, if you will, Eric, to give credit for that. Machine learning, AI. Yeah, so I'm going to give you honest unvarnished opinions on this one. You know, I think we've been really obsessed with this without knowing what the heck we're talking about half the time. AI and ML in particular really doesn't mean anything until you talk about the particular application. And so there's this incredible, this is another one where we're obsessed with what China's doing. And China comes out and says, we're going to be the best in 2025 or pick a date. And somehow that makes it so. And suddenly we're worried about how much money they're spending and we need to throw a whole bunch of money at it. And I keep asking people, what is it? There's this idea by a lot of people who don't understand machine learning that you can just sprinkle it on top of anything and make your system better. And it's not that, right? There are certain problems for which machine learning makes a lot of sense to try to apply. There are a lot of problems for which it makes no sense. Anything that's ill-defined, it doesn't handle well. And I'm sure you guys have been exposed enough to all of the brittleness of machine learning that I don't have to sit here and go on about that. The Department of Defense has been making proclamations since I was there and continues to do so about how important AIML is without defining what that means, in what context do they think it's most important, what problems should they be trying to solve with it. And I think they have a lot more work to do to get down into that level of assessment. The Jake, to me, has always been a concern. It's been something where we, we gave it a huge budget and then we decided afterwards, let's figure out what to do with it. Yep. I'm not a fan of it as is. I think it needs a lot more discipline um, before we, you know, so I told you, I'd give you an honest answer. Well, I, well, I, it's interesting <laughs> because like, I, I feel like the, the setup of the Jake is in part a bit of a response to all the stuff that we were talking about earlier of trying to hire really good folks and pushing autonomy down. Um, do you think that sort of went awry in this, in this opinion? It went awry. It went awry. I think to your point, yes, there was goodness. There's always good intentions, you know, or not always, but often. There were people who recognized correctly, we have to think about what it means. And they were trying to define that. They were trying to define platform. They were trying to decide how to 
developed data standards so data could be shared. There was a lot of goodness in the early days of thinking about what the jig should be. The problem is then a whole bunch of money was dumped on it. And then it became, well, let's go and do these problems and let's go and do this. And it became very all over the place. Meanwhile, you had Project Maven being run out of the USDI. And there was questions about how does that tie into the Jake? And so there was a lack of clarity and a lack of focus. That's what I'm, that's what I'm raising. As a taxpayer, getting back to my points, if you're going to use my money, you better have a disciplined post approach to how you use it. That's at least my standard. I'm not saying we're good at it, but I'm saying that's my expectation. And in the case of the Jake, I would like them to state a lot more clearly what it is that they believe their metrics are. What is it that they're actually trying to accomplish and how are they going to measure success? I, I asked that question multiple times when I was in the job. It was not appreciated then, but I'm more free to ask it now. Tell me how you're measuring success. What are the metrics for success? And don't give me some baloney about we're better than someone else. I don't even know what that means. Tell me your metrics for success. And if you can define those and we can then debate about whether those are the right metrics and the right focus, great. All right. But they're a long way from that. Eric, anything on that? No, not really. Yeah. I mean, it seems like their metric for success is that joint common foundations and enabling like an ecosystem and actually getting to what I think was those data decrees from Kathleen Hicks. But yeah, but those are all like uh, squishy, Eric. Right. Okay, great. I mean, I, I agree. A joint common foundation, which they've been talking about from the very early days, sounds okay. That sounds like something that we should be talking about. But what does that look like? What does success look like? You know, the Hallmeyer framework would go a long way here. I'm a big fan of Hallmeyer and a big fan of those questions that say, what does the success actually look like? And tell me the metrics you're going to use to measure yourself to assure you're on the path to that success that you've defined. It's a very simple question. They have not answered it to my, to my standards. And so, yeah, the concept of a joint common foundation, that's fine. But what does that look like? How are you actually going to get there? What are your intermediate steps? You know, it's a big budget for them to be you know, hand-waving the answers to that. I want to at least get to this one on blockchain. What, is that overrated, underrated in government specifically? Honestly, Eric, I think that's one that might be underrated. And I say that because there wasn't a lot of emphasis on it in the DOD. There was some fascination with it. It's a hard topic. I'm not an expert on it. I've read up on it because it's cool. All right. And it makes sense in terms of some of the arguments around the decentralization from a security perspective and how things can be protected that way. It gets conflated with Bitcoin, as you well know, not just in the, the government, but outside. It's not the same. Bitcoin is one instantiation of the idea. Whether or not Bitcoin makes sense for a variety of reasons, fine. That doesn't mean that blockchain as a concept isn't worthy of exploration, particularly when we're thinking about protection of data and how you do that and new ways of doing that. So I, I actually think that might be an area that's worthy of more investment from a research perspective. Again, I would like to see how my approach to that to say what specific applications are we interested in and how would we assess the value of this kind of approach versus the standard approaches today. Um, so, but, you know, you, we didn't hear a lot about it in the, in the building. We didn't hear a lot of discussion. So I think that might be an area that's worthy of a little more thought. Now, I, that would be something you might ask DARPA to look at, where you're going to have people who actually know that area who can dig into it. Quantum. Oh, yeah. Quantum. Oh, my goodness. Quantum. First of all, when you say quantum, it can mean a lot of things. But quantum computing in particular drives me nuts because there's no such thing as quantum computer, not one that does anything useful. There are a bunch of startups out there who will claim otherwise they're full of it. 
the reality of what it takes to build a quantum computer. It's very hard. I'm all for credible research and investment in that domain. And when I was at IARPA, we funded a lot of really good research in quantum. So I'm all for investing in quantum computing, but I am not for the hype that has resulted from people who want it, who want to make a you know quick buck, so to speak, and who recognize that most people who are investing have never taken a quantum physics class. So they don't even understand how much BS is being slung at them. So I get frustrated because I see claims being made of where we are with quantum computing and how much we're going to be doing in the next few years. And it's all baloney. And, and by the way, quantum radar also baloney. So to your point, Eric, about back in the days when the Soviet Union was our, our nemesis, and it was a very different adversary in many ways. But one thing we did then and we do now is they would announce something and suddenly we get really hyper worried that maybe we needed to do the same thing, whether it was ESP research or the typical type, the particular type of fusion reactor. There's a reason it's called the tokamak. We saw that they were doing what the way they did it and we adopted it. And by the way, they turned around and adopted our Stellarator. So they did it too. It's this, oh, what are you doing? We have to copy it. Oh, what are you doing? So with quantum radar, I, again, Jordan, maybe the Chinese aren't as sophisticated as I think they can be when they play the long game. But, you know, I just think they put that out there to mess with us. And so when they started announcing that they had a quantum radar, I got so many emails from people like, oh, my God, what are we doing in quantum radar? And I said, thankfully, I can answer honestly nothing. So, I mean, you know, we got we can't move away from rigor and discipline and we can't let fear and hype drive our decision making process. Do you think that's one that the commercial sector will be pushing on and DOD can jump on it rather than invest no, itself? I think in this case, the quantum computing realm is Ironically, it's an area where the IC and the DOD has done some very good quality research. Now, when I say they've done research, they funded most of it. So it's mostly been academic. Um, some of the labs, national labs have been involved as well. So there's a private sector component to it when you consider academia as part of the private sector. But it just takes a lot of time to do what we're talking about in terms of how many qubits are required the stability of these qubits. There's a whole bunch of issues around it and really good solid papers have been written about it. It's not to say we won't see advancements because we will, but they won't take, they will take time and they will come from a lot more investment at what you would consider like a fundamental research level. Later on, eventually when it's ready, sure, let's see what, let's turn the commercial sector loose, but it's way too early. It would be like saying right now that people had pocket fusion reactors available. It, it, like that. Come on. That's just not happening. To, to not get too down on quantum, is is there any uh, light at the end of the tunnel for like quantum key distribution or some of these other things? So there are challenges there as well. And this notion that somehow we're behind China is just false. We we are scientists, again, are real scientists, not, not people who are full of it, ha have already made a lot of advances there who, and they understand what remains to be done. So the NSA actually, not too long ago, came out with a very nice piece, believe it or not, very public out in the open about the real challenges of QKD and what needs to be done if you want to see it leveraged in a meaningful way. And as far as the security attributes of it and what it's being, what it's being advertised to be able to do, there's a lot of downside to it. I won't bore you with it in the, in the limited time we have. Um, so it's not that I wouldn't say don't look at it, but I would say look at it with the appropriate amount of rigor and skepticism. And I don't mean cynicism, right? Skepticism, which is really about looking at something and saying, what do I need to understand? And what are the pitfalls of it? And how do I understand what it takes to make it happen?
So it's not, and quantum sensors and things like that are also interesting. It's not that there isn't really good stuff to do here. What I get annoyed with is the hype factor is through the roof. And it usually comes from people who don't, who've never taken a basic physics class, never mind a quantum physics class. So that's when I get irritated. My science requirement in college was filled with quantum physics for non-science majors. So I'm going to, I'm going to check myself off and in, in, in your book uh, for that one, at least Lisa. Uh, additive <laughs> man, you've, oh, the other one that you'd appreciate was movie physics. So anyways, um, <laughs> the last one for you, additive manufacturing. Yeah, a, a very compelling area. Lots of pot uh, potential applications. Again, this is one where you have to say, for what purpose, right? What is the context, to use Eric's word? Does it add, does it, does that approach provide value that isn't there if I don't do it that way? And there are going to be some areas where you try it and it turns out, no, nope, other ways of, of building make more sense. And in a lot of areas, it's going to be very interesting. And we are seeing that effect, right? You know that, you know, some of the rocket companies and space companies are talking a lot about it. And I, I think it's very exciting. So is it overhyped? No, I, 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 only because I think it's got the cred to pull it through. I think there are enough examples to point to there as opposed to quantum computers where you can't point to one. You can point to real existence proofs of where additive manufacturing is making a difference. So there, there are still challenges with it, uh, obviously, but I think that's an area where it's appropriate. I would say it's an appropriate level of excitement around that. Lisa Porter, thanks so much for being a part of China Acquisition Talk. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. We got a new review from Mackenzie. Jordan could have the voice of a streaking monkey, which he doesn't, and I would still listen to what he has to say. The content of this podcast is simply great. Thank you, Mackenzie. Can 